Alright, greedy capitalist swine, it's time to search the deep reaches of your mind. Welcome to episode 103 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. We were scheduled to record yesterday, but we got the tail end of the American hurricane, which put Tam's transport plans to rest. But I've got this. A while ago, I touched base with Richard Cox of the Deep State Consciousness podcast, and he was particularly interested in episode 91 of this show, a presentation I did called The Psychology of Statism, and he gave me an opportunity to expand on some of those ideas, and that's something that's of great interest to me as well. It's a running theory, something I still mean to investigate further and learn more about and develop my ideas regarding, so I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness podcast. Today I'm joined by Anthony Samaroff. Anthony is a psychologist and therapist and also the host of the Scottish Liberty podcast. Anthony, hello, welcome to the show. Hi, Richard, thank you so much for having me on your show. Delighted to join you. So we're going to focus on a presentation you gave which really captivated me and it brought the two halves of your expertise together called mm. the psychology of the state i uh, think it was called the psychology of statism psychology of statism even better yeah. right where you looked at the underlying psychological factors that are going into people's relationship to attitude mm. towards this thing we call the state okay right you yourself are coming at that from a rather unusual position of right. someone who rejects the notion that the state is a benevolent entity that it enhances our lives and not that said it we could reform it and make it better but if we got rid of it altogether we wouldn't yeah. just um survive but we'd thrive under those circumstances so basically anthony i'm saying you're an right. yeah yeah well i i'm an ideological anarchist let's say uh, i don't believe that the state is a necessary institution um I wouldn't. I don't know if anarchist is like the the best term to describe it because obviously people have certain preconceptions about sure. the word anarchism. You know, people throwing Molotov cocktails, and then of course the first people to claim the term anarchism were were a brand of communists, of far um, you know people on far left socialists, social anarchists. They believed in a social order without government. Or without capitalism i'm not against uh, commerce or business so i don't necessarily know if i uh, directly fall into that tradition um, but essentially yeah i'm a support an advocate of a stateless society i'm not saying that we should get rid of all governments tomorrow because that's like assuming that if we burnt down all the churches everyone would immediately become atheists no that's not how it works people need to be able to organize socially um, and also uh, people have bad examples of so-called anarchist societies like somalia which is not actually a anarchist society it's a failed state mm. well it's like it's it's like if you provide if you allow the state to have a monopoly on providing certain services whether it's security police national defense or we can go even further healthcare and education and the state collapses obviously because they had a monopoly over providing their services there's no one else there to to step in and fill the gap instantly incidentally places in rural so somalia um performed better after the state collapsed it was um it was places like the urban cities and things like that where they relied more on government that uh, that went so badly. So I know I've already been talking a lot, but I just make one more qualification, which is that in reality, there is no state. We already live in anarchy, actually. What there are is there, there's a whole bunch of individuals and some of them call themselves a government. There, there only are individuals. There only are. Like, look around. Where can you point this? See if I showed you a satellite picture of the map, the, the globe. You wouldn't be able to point out where one country ends and the other begins. You know, they're arbitrary lines. They're conceptual. They're conceptual entities. States are intersubjective. 
we agree based on consensus that they exist. So how did this entity gain legitimacy? Well, one way is they, they, they hold elections. So you have a few people called the government who call themselves the government and they're the state. And then you have, say, public servants, people who work for that entity, whether it's that conceptual entity, whether it's um, in the civil service, the tax collectors, police, people in the military. Okay, there's a big difference between people who make a living in the so-called public sector and people who make a living in the private sector. If you work in the private sector, I need to go out and convince people to buy my services, whether that's as a wage job or whether I produce something and I sell it to people, right? If you work for this entity called the state, you defy those laws of economics and reciprocity. Your income is drawn at the point of a gun through the tax system. If you don't pay your taxes, you get a strongly worded letter. If you ignore the letter, you'll get a court summons. If you ignore the court summons, people will come to your house and try to drag you off. And if you resist them, they will shoot you and kill you. So if you don't get pay your taxes, you will be put in a cage with murderers and rapists, right? That's the punishment. So this idea that in our day-to-day -day life, we have certain standards in which we interact as individuals. If you hit your friend or threaten them or um, you steal from them or you deceive them, you commit fraud, we call that antisocial. All of that behavior is considered antisocial. You would not define your friendships or your relationships based on your um, ability to aggress against other people, or but your your mutual mutually not aggressing each other. The same goes for the shopkeeper, right? You get up on with each other socially in day to day life by not stealing from the shop. If you steal from the shop, then we have a problem. So then we have. At the center of society, what we call society, this entity called the state, where everything's backwards. Okay, now coercion is the uh, dish de jour. You know, um, it's immoral, we are told, for the state not to tax people because then they can't, you know, not to steal from people. They're meant to <laughs> do it. So, so there's this strange inversion in people's perception of what is socially acceptable in their day-to-day -day life compared to what the government um, should and um, should not do. And I basically would say that um, if it's a principle, what, like, see if you can't get smacking people and stealing their stuff to work in your day-to-day -day life, like to create smooth interactions in day-to-day -day life, why would we expect that using putting coercion at the center of society as the organizing principle of society would result in, in good results. And of course, we've seen the effects that states can have, concentration camps, world wars, gulags, um, that's, you know, that's the least of it. Um, there's much more subtle forms of coercion. I don't know the extent to which the, the state is responsible for slowing down um, the material prosperity of people. Um, but that, that's, on, that's an economic question which we can maybe delve into later if we have, have time. Sure, well, I'd love to, um, I'm gonna resist the temptation to start yeah. asking you questions about what you've just said because it's a wonderful, succinct definition and explanation of why you're an anarchist. anarchist. And we could just talk about that. We could all just explore sure. that for the next hour, but I, I'm really keen to talk about the, psych the, the particular presentation, the psychology of statism. Before I do, I do wonder if I can ask you to maybe give uh, an example of an event in your own life, something you saw that led you in this direction. I'm assuming that you weren't always holding these views. And I think no. it may be helpful to people to relate from a personal example. Now, I'm aware if someone asked me to do that, I might be finding it difficult to give a concise um, sure. answer. But if any little example of something you saw that... Okay. I'll just my the quick the brief um, the brief story of status to anarchist. Um, 
I guess I had like, let's say slightly left of center views, progress, what we call in America now progressive. I had progressive views. I believed in a market economy, but I believed in cleaned up capitalism. You know, the state should regulate the economy and save us from the predations of capitalism. And we should have um, government mandated social safety net, uh, universal health care, education, blah, blah, blah. But apart from that, it was for a market economy. A heavily regulated market economy. I put started putting videos up on YouTube, um, because I got into the same debates over and over again. I thought if I could put little presentations on YouTube, presenting some of my arguments and political views, that um, I wouldn't have to have the same conversations again, because I could just put that information out. This is about two thousand and seven. So shortly afterwards, all these libertarians. Um, I don't know if your people at home are familiar with the term libertarian. It's kind of a political ideology which looks on the face of a so-called left wing on foreign policy and um, on civil liberties. So they don't believe in the government snooping on you and things like that. And they, these used to be associated with the left, but on economics, they were so-called right-wing, or they're for capitalism, not socialism. So these uh, free market capitalists gatecrashed my YouTube channel and sent me down the, um, kept on arguing with me, and sent me down the rabbit hole of um, watching videos and over the course, I wasn't, a, I wasn't an easy sell on anarchism. But once uh, someone brought to me the attention of the non-aggression principle, which is the idea, right? You don't hit people, you don't take the, their stuff, you don't um, commit fraud, you don't uh, bear false witness, or harm other people by telling falsehoods about them, so to speak. I mean, that's not the same as not being able to lie. So that that's a great, you don't aggress against anyone. When people brought that to my attention, okay, that does make sense. That is a principle. That is how we live ethically day to day. We do adhere to the non-aggression principle in our day to day relationships. Um, then uh, it wasn't enough to convert me because I thought, well, yeah, that might be true, but the alternative might be worse. I mean, if it really is uh, children die, is starving to death on the street uh, without the government, then maybe maybe that coercion is better. Maybe a little bit of coercion is better than uh, none. So uh, I took a couple of years to... I needed to have my own curiosity satisfied to the extent that anarchy would not lead to worse predations and once it was i kind of i ran out of excuses mm -hmm. and i had to um embrace the idea that what is rational and consistent is um going to lead to what like your your good sorry corrupt means cannot result in good ends sometimes people think the ends justify the means yeah. uh, but but the but your means become your ends that's why every communist revolution ends up in people starving, gulags, like you have to kill people. You have to kill people who don't want to go along with your utopian idea. You're and it always results in chaos. You should never, and this doesn't just, this is what I mean. I believe that the universe uh, behaves on principles. You know, the universe adheres to the laws of logic. You know, something very simple that the economist Adam Smith said is, we don't get bread out of the benevolence of the baker. It's out of his self-interest, right? So he sells you bread because he's self-interested. From that we can, um, our, but it's mutually beneficial. If I swap you a pen for a tie, we're, we're better off because you prefer the pen and I prefer sure. the tie. Otherwise, we wouldn't be swapping. So I, I know I've been talking for a long time, but once I understood the principle that there is such a thing as a voluntary transaction between individuals that benefits both individuals, that's not exploitative. So once you realize that that, is, that exists, you go, okay, well, obviously, you're, if you choose corrupt means if you choose coercion then you are going to have less good results than if you just say no we don't use coercion unless someone initiates force if someone initiates force we can use coercion to subdue them you know to in self-defense but we don't initiate the use of force sure yeah so 
That's a great response. And I think there's a couple of things that intrigue me. One is this idea that when you say you believe the universe works on principles and the ends don't justify the means, the means become the ends. That's an interesting, that there's a kind of almost deeper philosophical position about the nature of the universe that this is coming out of. But I want to, I want to put yeah. that thought on ice. For sure. A That's okay. And maybe we can go to it rather than sure. start with it. So the rest of what you said, it all sounds very sensible to me, Anthony. Like you had one position, you were talking about it. These people came along and said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You need to look at this. You looked at it and you took your time. You were cautious. You said, yeah, but what about this? And over time you said, you know what? They're right. I'm going to go with that. If only the world worked that way, yeah. you wouldn't have had to have made a video called the psychology of statism. Because right. when we look out into the world, if it was that rational, YouTube Where, would be full of videos of people on the political left and the political right sitting down and having rational, reflective discussions about the minimum wage, socialized, whatever, and coming to an agreement. That's not what YouTube is full of. YouTube is full of videos ranting angrily at each other for people with yes. different positions, waving placards, trying their best to find ways to produce the most devastating insult to the other side. And I think if an alien spaceship came along and observed this from a distance, their report they would send back to the home planet would be that clearly the human beings are acting out some kind of deeper psychological angst yeah. in their political discussions, that they're not right. objective. They're, and that's, that's where your presentation comes in. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Given the, the heat and the anger and the division around political conversations, yeah. where do you think that's coming from? Okay, there's so many ways to tackle this question. The first thing I would say is, Everyone's first experience of authority is the parents. And I was really very much brought, this was brought to my attention by the very successful YouTuber, Stefan Molyneux, when I got into his work, which by the way, I preferred many years back because now he very much focuses on news and things like that. I liked, um, I found his, and more philosophical or deeper sure, psychological. The, um, the career trajectory of Stefan Molyneux was another yeah. podcast all in itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, back, back in those days, um, he, he, for example, talked about uh, the application of the non-aggression principle to children, like not smacking your kids, for example, which is just the start. Um, but, okay, there was a, there, he brought to my attention the, the work of a psychologist called Lloyd DeMoss, who wrote a couple of books called The Emotional Life of Nations and The Origins of War and Child Abuse. And he went through history, he created a field called psychohistory, which is psychology as applied to history, and showed how the parenting styles that were prevalent in certain times affected the kind of governments that people had. So before fascism came to power in Italy, and Germany, there was a period of particularly horrendous authoritarian parenting in both those. So there's that's one level of it, the projection of the parents onto the state, um, and also gods. So if you look, say, in India, where they had a very family-orientated society, where you had an extended family, their gods were a pantheon. They had many gods. Uh, the, that would be a child's first experience of authority. Many gods, right? Uncles, aunties, mums, dads, all living in, together in the one house. Um, when you look at the Old Testament and the time that the Old Testament was created, the, uh, the parenting styles would have been very authoritarian and you have an authoritarian God. And around the time of Jesus, you have a more benevolent kind of God um, that more, but but you know, G Jesus um, says, "I sacrificed everything for you. I sacrificed so much for you, my whole life." Now that sounds kind of like the kind of thing a parent would say, you know, um, especially maybe around that time of where where the so the 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 governments and the religions that spawn on the earth appear to, according to Lloyd de Moss's work, reflect the parenting styles that are prevalent at the time. And as you've seen um, Western civilization progress, in the 20th century, we had parents start saying to their kids, um, what do you want to do with your life? 
that was unheard of before the 20th century. That's very, very recent parenting style. Before that, your parents bloody well tell you what to do. So, um, that's the first element. That was the first thing that put me on the scent, which led me down. This is years ago. So that that presentation has been literally years in the making. Now, to bring it up to speed, I'm a psychologist. I'm a therapist, right? And I've studied trauma, um, the effects of trauma on the human psyche. And I can talk a lot or a little about that. But the, the short version is when a human being experiences a trauma, their brain reacts, but it doesn't unreact. And you need to consciously work on yourself to unreact your traumas. So there's various modalities that can help um, somatic experiencing, EMDR, trauma therapy, etc. If you want to hear more about that, um, I guess you can check out, uh, you, can, you, can, you can get in touch with me. We don't have all the time in the world. So what happens when you experience a trauma? You, we've all heard of the fight or flight response. Now it's more often said the fight, flight, or freeze response, and sometimes even the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. What does fawn mean? That means sucking up to people, basically, to get out of trouble. So um, the, 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 the brain is designed, first, first and foremost, the brain wants you to survive. It doesn't care about your quality of life. It wants you to survive, first and foremost. So if you, get in a, you have a traumatic experience, you react and the brain goes, well, that's how I survived that experience. So I'm going to keep that as a pattern. Even things like texts are often, um, or maybe always the product of a trauma where actually someone's reacting to a stimulus that's no longer present. Do you understand the fight or flight response? Supposing the way that you got out various traumas when you were growing up was to go into a fight response. You then learn that the way you deal with stressful situations is to get aggressive. That's how you get people away from you. Or the free, the flight response, um, you just bail. You just get, get the hell out of here. Or more often, I think very, very prevalent is the freeze response where people just don't know what to do when they're under pressure and they just completely freeze. So um, then that becomes the tendency of your personality. That becomes how you deal with stressful situations. So I would say when you're talking about these placards and arguments on the internet, uh, what you're basically seeing is people's uh, fight response. They're not actually in a situation where their life is threatened, but they have an accumulation of undischarged tensions from ever since they were a child. Every time they felt threatened, they wound up, but they didn't wind down afterwards. And it, you know, if you look in nature after animals suffer a trauma, they um, they discharge that. They 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 flail their limbs. Basically, they start flailing. Mm. Now, if you've ever seen someone have a panic attack, they start to tremor. And what do people usually do? They go, "It's okay. There's no need to shake." They stop them from tremoring. That's biologically wrong. What you're getting them to do is repress the body's natural ability to discharge stress from the system. So. This is everywhere. Everyone needs to get into trauma release exercises. You can look them up on YouTube and um, find ways to start discharging because it's, there's, people aren't literate about this. Okay, so, we'll, come big, to, yeah. we'll come to what people can maybe do about it in a minute. I'm yeah. just keen to get your thoughts on how the problem is visibly manifesting. So maybe it's too simple, but I'm going to put people into like, Two categories. Yeah. Well, that's what I did in the. That's uh, yeah. What I did in the so yeah, that's what I'm getting it from. <laughs> but you can see it like in the UK, it manifests as maybe in a big way over the Brexit, right? Debate. That's a good example. Okay. Yeah. Which, given the level of response people have had to that, it's clear that Brexit or being in or out of the European Union means more to people than just are we getting a better trade deal? That's what they'll talk about. But yeah. Clearly, no, when I talk to people about why they wanted to remain in Europe, it's tied up with a whole vision of the future and coming together right. as one world and working together and, and not having these yeah. horrible wars and boundaries and regressing yeah. into this. And yeah. look at that on so many levels. And you see it also, yeah. um, obviously, of the Trump phenomenon then in the yeah. United States. It seems to divide people down the middle. 
And you can Absolutely. see that if people are, are pro-Remain, they're probably going to be concerned about global warming. Okay. Whereas yeah. I would say someone who wants to leave the EU, yeah. statistically, more chance not. Yeah, to now, yeah and they're, they're concerned That's... about immigration. Yes, because there's two distinct personality structures coming out there. And I guess my kind of analysis is um, the right, what we call the right, the political right. I know it's too broad a term. I think the right-left divide is not as useful as it's not useless it does has its use have its uses but it can be deceptive the political right are those who are more kind of they've got the more of the fight response and the uh, left have got more of the flight response which is the oh no we need to like love and appreciate everyone and like we would rather some it's always our fault like Every, you know, everything in the world that's ever gone wrong is the fault of Western civilization. You know, it's, the, it's more passive, like, um, whereas the right is more aggressive and it's like them, it's their fault. It's their fault. Like, it's the immigrants, it's the, it's the Muslims. And also, did you know what? Both have, the thing is, both are tend to be correct in what they affirm and wrong in what they deny. So, for example, the left think that the only problem with Islam is that we've bombed their countries, which is just completely ahistorical. Or you've not actually read the documents and what Islam actually says. Do you know what I mean? What Muhammad's life was like. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad set of ideas, Islam. It's got a whole um, totalitarian political philosophy baked into it whereas the right seem to deny the fact that us going to other countries and blowing people up isn't going to result in blowback which is absolutely crazy i mean one event in america 9 11 uh, led us into war in iraq and afghanistan so how pissed off do you think those people are and how 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 hateful do you think they feel when you kill them so they, they, there's these they both have these blind spots i want to bring up donald trump because he's a he is, as you say, the perfect example. And if you find out, if you try and find out what the left actually don't like about him policy-wise, they just tend to make shit up, right? It's, or they pull certain quotes that they think paint him in a light. That fundamentally they hate his character. Uh, it's down that divide, which is they just think he's uncouth. That, fundamentally, that's the reason they don't like him. They think he's uncouth. He's too too boisterous. He's too uh, arrogant. He's got too much swagger. Whereas that's exactly why the right like him. Mm. You know, yeah. he's got there's Trump. Some of Trump's policies are completely patently ridiculous, and he's gone back on so many of his uh, campaign positions. He was meant to be an anti-establishment figure, but he's filled his cabinet with establishment figures. So there's plenty to criticize him for, but those who love him think he can do no wrong. And of course, the truth is, he's not as bad as his... Or he's not bad for the reasons which his critics think they are. Well, I think another way of looking at that, Andrew, might be to say that his predecessors were just as bad, but didn't yeah. get that level of criticism. So Barack Obama used drone bombs to separate children from their family. Yeah. Okay, that's a more he, permanent way of yeah. doing it. Did he really get much criticism death. for it compared no, to what he, Trump's got? His, his, his policy, Obama's policies starved the people of Yemen to death. But we didn't hear anything from the left. He bombed seven Muslim countries. Where did the anti-war movement go? At least under Bush, people had something at stake. Like bands like the Dixie Chicks who criticized Bush for the war on terror got blocked from the radio. Now you've got these so-called subversive lefties. Oh, you're so brave taking an anti-Trump position on TV. Oh, that's so brave of you. Bravo. Do you know what stand-up comedians? Low-hanging fruit. It's all virtue. It's all preaching to the choir. So, um, and they think they're radical when actually they have their their position is one of the two mainstream positions. That's the that's the ridiculous thing. So, so. What's going on here? There's, it's about personality structure more than anything else. The left want to say, like, let's let, you know, let everyone in, live and let live. Like, we should be able to sacrifice for other people. And the right are saying, no, we need a strong border. You know, we need, we need to be able to separate. And there is, like, 
this is the thing I think people don't understand. The cons like conservative-minded people, they can't just come out and say, well, you know what? We like to be around people who are like us because people will go, that's racist. And in a way, it kind of is racist, but they, they want to say, why can't you stop making us wrong? Like, it's none of your business if we want to just be around people like us. We don't like going out the house and see, hearing people speaking all sorts of different languages that we don't understand or with cult. We want to be around people like us. And you want to force multiculturalism onto us when we're just not comfortable with it. Uh, and and the, the 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 right the obviously the left wing response is well that's racist and they and the thing is I don't think conservative people tend to be very articulate I mean you've got um, Ben Shapiro I suppose but he'd never come out and say he's very articulate but he'd never come out and say do you know what the thing is with us conservatives we just like to be around people like us and we're sick of being called racist or being made wrong for that. It's not like we hate other races. Um, they can do their own thing in their own countries. Can you imagine someone getting up on TV sure. and saying that? But they just don't want to be wrong. It's like, it's, it's got a libertarian thing to it because they say, if you guys want to be around people who are not like you, you go and do it. We don't want to see our culture change. We are comfortable with our culture. It feels familiar to us. And you can see a sort of psychology of that. You know, it might be too narrow. They might be too insecure. But there has to be a line somewhere. You know, there has to be a more reasonable position than these two extreme positions of like, let's make the wall impermeable and not let anyone else in and stay exactly the same. Although some would argue that it's worked for Japan. And on the left side, like, um, you know, Okay, make it a free for all. Why? Because we, because see, if people come here, they get free schools, they get free healthcare, they get um, welfare, they might get a flat. Uh, that means that immigrants get to loot the native population for resources through the tax system. So there needs to be some kind of compromise. Either you get rid of the welfare state and you have no no welfare. Uh, and no benefits for immigrants until they've paid into the system, and then you can maybe have open borders, or you close the borders, and you and you you need to institute integration policies because there's no integration policy. Well, you know there is I mean? this there's this fight over one centre of power, right? So you have these just two distinctly different groups of people and one centre yeah. of power, and whoever gets to control it. That's right. That's well know? put. You have half, it's the war of all against all. You have half the population trying to put their way of life, which is no abortions, strict, uh, no, uh, but no uh, strict, no controls on guns. It's um, more free market economy, etc., etc. They're trying to impose their oh, foreign interventionism, surveillance state. Um, etc. Authority, the right love authority. They, who, got, who knows why they love authority so much, but they love it. You can't burn the flag. That should be a jailable offense. Right? They want to impose that upon people who want to impose something else on them, which is to say, you have to marry gays in your church, even if you don't want to. You have to be inclusive. You have to um, uh, employ a certain number of minorities you have to you have to you have to one uh, side is trying to impose their have to's on the other you have to pay for the poor sure and it strikes me as that in, in any other walk of life the solution would be obvious like let's say you and i were flatmates okay yeah and you like to play your music very loud into the night and mm -hmm. i like to read a book and go to bed at nine o'clock okay yeah. at some point we will probably agree that we are not suitable yeah. people to share a flat right. and we'd come to yeah. some arrangement one of us to stay or yeah, whatever yeah but this but is an unthinkable thought, thought yeah. in terms of the state. People don't no. think, well, maybe we're just not wanting to be governed under the same structure yeah. and we should secede in some way. Or Yeah, the left really oppose um, federalism in America, which is the, the states, because it's not good enough that we have the right to abortion in blue states. The red states have to accept our way of life. Now, I mean... It doesn't really matter my position on this issue. I'm just saying that it's not enough for some people that we live this way. Everyone has to live this way. Now, um, if we go to a restaurant, you, me, and a few other friends, we all 
get to pick our own meal. That's why I love the free market. Okay, everyone gets to pick what we want. We don't have to go, well, uh, let's take a vote. Who wants curry and who wants pizza? Well, if it's five to four, all nine of us have to have pizza. And that's what the political system is about. And that's why it will never work. And the bigger the political structure is, the more the political structure is the war of all against all. So we should try as best we can. I mean, I would like to see a world where we are devolving the center of political power down to the individual. And the principles are you don't hit people, you don't take their stuff, you don't commit fraud, uh, you don't harm people by um, um, bearing false witness. And, you know, maybe a, a, another couple, you don't harm another person in their person or their property. If you can, um, in other words, it's the old principle, which is do what you want as long as you don't harm anyone else. So let's move on to talking about the solutions you touched on with trauma, okay? But just to qualify before we do that, I just want to call it, I don't think what you're saying or either of us saying is that anyone who has any belief in the nation state in some way is coming from a psychologically unbalanced place because you know as well as i do that growing mm. up in the british isles it the, the yeah. sea that everyone swims in and just yeah you, you go you can go your whole life and never even occurs yeah. to you to question that where i think things become a problem is when we notice being presented with ideas that aren't our own if we're having mm. a very emotional reaction to that um and rather than having an ability to reflect upon these ideas and go, that's interesting. Let me think about that. Let me try and understand your position better. Now the criticisms I would have are this and, and working yeah. the way you described your yeah. own, there's this absolute shutdown to the other, yes. whether it's uh, taking on the ideas of yeah. the opposite political pole or yeah. whether it's the idea of that these nation states shouldn't exist in the way they do, whatever it is. So, yeah, people feel their identity is threatened. And I just yeah. add to that. But bear in mind, people go through 11 to 13 years of mandatory education where they learn about how it was all uh, horrible until the state came along and fixed it. Um, if the schools were run by McDonald's, not many people would be eating Burger King. I'm sure they'd have all these stories about how Burger King did all the most horrible things all through history. And I, I would just add to that, um, states did not like arrive like there's this idea that people got together at some point and said let's make a government to solve our disputes that's not how it happened government arose at the same time as slavery arose before the invention of agriculture no individual could gain more food than it took to sustain themselves. You know, we lived a subsistence lifestyle. We went out and, and caught animals and foraged for berries and things like that in groups, and we shared the spoils. When we learned how agriculture, one person could produce more food than they needed. And that, that led to commerce, that led to exchange. But it also led to slavery, because now there's, now, oh, I can enslave someone because they can produce more than they eat and I can steal. And it also led to states, to, to nation states, because the government now had something to tax. So the first governments were people who said they were either the embodiment of gods on the earth or representative of gods. Very, very uh, Government and religion was very, very tied together right up until the 18th century and the Enlightenment. Um, the church, the church played the role of giving legitimacy to the monarchs and the states. And then nowadays, the university professors play the same role as the court intellectuals did in the past, where they come up with these wacky harebrained theories like the social contract, which you've never even heard of. You can never read it, you can sign it, but apparently just for, for being born, you're subject to. There's never been such a contract that is considered valid, but they come up with all these justifications for the state. Oh, if it wasn't for the state, children would be going up chimneys. Well, actually, uh, child labor was like something like 95% abolished in this country before there was any laws against uh, um, oh and the industrial revolution the capitalists exploited workers never mind the fact that throughout the entirety of the industrial revolution the living standards for the people at the bottom was increasing at a rate unprecedented in all of history and it was capitalism that actually ended poverty 
um, through the capital investment, creating machines that allowed one person. So we could go on and on and on and sure. on. Um, and just to, but, just to clarify, you're not saying that there's no form of what I could call governance could be helpful. Like if no. you have an apartment block, you yeah. might have a committee to, to designate how yeah. you take care of the communal areas. But the Meeting point is thing. chosen as to live voluntary. In, yeah, as but opposed to that's, something imposed from the top down. Yeah, it's created from the bottom up instead of the top down. You and I figure out something that works, and if it works well, we include more people in it. And if other people see that working well, that spreads out through society like a meme. This is I've got a really great presentation, if you don't mind me uh, bigging it up, called um, Why Markets Work, Public Versus Private, where I talk about the different incentive structures that... Um, voluntary institutions versus state institutions have. So the thing, the great thing with the bottom-up approach is every idea gets tested on a small scale, and if it works for some people, it's more widely adopted. Whereas the government approach is, we need to use our brains to anticipate what we think is going to work, and we we impose it on the entire society. And if it doesn't work, oh well, you know, we just need to come up with something else. It's a very very risky way sure. of running yeah. anything. So. So basically, yeah, I can't remember what your original question was, but I just wanted to point out that states weren't arrived at organically. The latest justification for states is, oh, well, we vote. We are all the state. We are all the state. Well, that's not, you know, that's not how states were originally created. That's just the latest way of legitimating the use of force. So... What was your question? Well, the question, perhaps you can comment on, because these, oh, all yeah, these yeah, points yeah. are so fascinating yeah. that you could make hope. But I'd like yeah. you to speak to trauma, okay? Because another okay. thing I find okay. exciting about our period in history is not only can we get access to all these political, economic, scientific, mm. and on and on and on ideas for the internet, it's perhaps the first time in history, you know, being a human being has been quite a traumatic thing throughout history. Yeah, you know, children die in childbirth, there are wars going on, famine, slavery, all sorts. And we have, let's hope it continues, emerged out of that to some degree, at least yes. in some parts of the world. Almost, we can now go, okay, let's, let's yeah. look at that. So with regard to the kind of um, inability to reflect on different ideas that yes, trauma might what create, what can people yeah. do about so that? People, people feel they're... So yeah, people. The reason why you see people reacting and becoming doxastically closed, which is they can accept new ideas, is because they feel like their identity itself is threatened when their ideas is threatened. And I would argue maybe some of that is biological, maybe some of it's genetic, but I would say that um, an overactive fight or flight response created by previous traumas would only reinforce the feeling that one is at risk when their ideas are at risk. So it could be possible that if we had a trauma literate society and it was the norm for people to um, be rehabilitated from trauma psychologically, which by the way, animals do in nature, they um, discharge a trauma response. Um, if humans did that, then it's very possible that people would be a lot more open-minded and they'd be a lot more functional. So um, how, what can people do? Okay, the first thing is to understand trauma. I've got some episodes of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast on, um, on, on that. Um, there's some good books. Uh, one is called, uh, you check out a guy called Robert Scare. S-C-A-E-R, Bob Scare. He's, he's got some great um, presentations on YouTube. Get educated, understand what trauma is. Then there's various modalities that are designed to help discharge the freeze response, sorry, the trauma response from the body. Um, somatic experiencing, uh, EMDR, trauma release exercises, bioenergetics, anything that involves not just the, the mind, but the physical body as well. And there's, uh, there's one or two more mentioned bioenergetics or something else. Um, yeah, but yeah, these are, that, that's enough to start with. That's enough to start with. Um, check out these, see if there's a practitioner in your area and try something out, find out if it works for you. And if you feel yourself getting better, then um, you, so 
I guess this ties into my personal individualist philosophy, which is I don't think that political action is the best way to change the world. I think the best way to change the world is bring yourself to your maximum potential, become skilled, talented, get in good mental health, become happy, get good relationships, be, be competent and create a change in your local environment, which other people can copy. So to that effect, by the way, I wrote a short book called Procrastination Annihilation to help people become more productive. Is this the book that's about to come out? Or is no, it- the, 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 this is my previous book. This okay. has already been released. The reason I mention it is people can download it for free from beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. And that's my free book on helping you overcome procrastination. The good thing is if you get the book, links to all of my other media, my self-help podcast, my political podcast, everything is are in that book, that ebook, that free ebook. So if people want to keep in touch with my work or find out my other links, just download the free book from okay. beyourselfandloveit.com. We'll I have one more adjunct question on, on the trauma thing, and then sure. we'll move in towards the end. Um, so we've, you've talked there about how I might address my own trauma, okay, and how I might increase my own capacity to not have that reactive response to different ideas. But also, I go out into the world, I go to friends' houses, yeah, I talk on Facebook, and I meet people who I, I put forward a, a rational case for, this is why we should do this with whatever minimum wage, yeah. whatever it is, and I get uh, what I can spot is not a rational but a reactive response back. Yeah. And where okay. I think this takes dialogue in general is I get a reactive response, so I respond yeah. to a reactive response, and you get arguments erupting. And there seems to be, this can be a bit of an addictive thing. People can quite yeah. like the winning of yeah. arguments or to walk away feeling, well, I was clearly right, that fool over there. Yeah. How Do you have any insight on Definitely. how people can approach when they feel they're getting a reactive response that isn't just going yeah. to increase, increase but going to deactivate that? Yeah. Great, great question. There are some things that you can do to reliably um, create better exchanges of ideas. And the idea is to, instead of it come, see what happens when you take an oppositional approach is people dig their feet in because it becomes me versus you. Now, if you can change the dynamic to be me and you trying to share information and work this out, you've got a much better chance of getting through to people and you might learn too. So the first thing to do, I've got two specific tools that really help. You need to slow down. See if someone um, states a position that you disagree with. Instead of launching into a a monologue of always the wrong and the reason and evidence, first thing is you can ask, how did you reach that conclusion? Like, how did you come to that position? in a non-confrontational way. Oh, how did you reach that conclusion? So, and let them, you might want to interrupt, but just let them explain how they arrived at their position. The second thing technique is to paraphrase what you think their position is in your own words. Try and put their position better than they put it. So am I right in thinking that you believe X, Y, Z? And they will say, they will either go, yeah, yeah, or they will say, not quite that, but, or they will say, and also, let them articulate their position and listen to them like you care, <laughs> you know, like you really want to understand. Make sure just you demonstrating that you understand their position will make them more open to what you have to say and less confrontational. So what you would say back then is, um, uh, oh, I have different information or the way I see it or I understand differently or have you heard of this you know and you present the and you present what you've learned not as a contradiction but as more information now I'm not saying that I'm impeccable and that I always do it this way but if you want to do it well then this is the diplomatic way to do it. In fact, I've got an article on the site Waking Times. You can just type in how to change someone's mind into Google and Waking Times or uh, Anthony Samaroff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So loads of links in, in the description of this one, I think, I fear. Um, but yeah, this is the thing. People want quick 
three minute YouTube videos and they want to understand the world. The thing is this uh, short attention span, you can't really fully understand any issue without seeing it from many perspectives. And that's why I like doing presentations like the psychology of statism or the uh, why markets work public versus private because they gave me an extended period of time to look at one issue from many angles with many evidences and arguments and you, your time in those presentations if you people watching at home would like to listen to them will not be wasted they will give you a thorough understanding that took me you know, over a decade to reach, you know, you're, uh, it's a shortcut. It's not a long time to invest in really understanding something. Sure. Okay, thank you, Anthony. As a final um, point, I know you're just about to release a new book or it just has yeah. come out. Do you want to just finish off by talking? Yeah, I'm, 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 I've got another book coming out called Universal Basic Income For and Against and people might have heard of the Universal Basic Income. What I do in that book is I go through first of all um some of the arguments for just like i was telling you on how to change someone's mind then i go through the arguments against uh, or i explain why i think some of those four arguments aren't a hundred percent and then i have a whole section on the book of the book my favorite section which is on how we can improve i think people who are in favor of the ubi want it because they think it will help people um, on low incomes or at the bottom of the economic ladder. So I go through a whole bunch of policies that could be implemented that would specifically help the people at the bottom of the economic ladder, but would involve less coercion rather than less government, less state power rather than more. And that's what I, I gave a nod to earlier on in our talk when I said, I don't know the extent to which the government has uh, hampered the growth in people's living standards, but I go through things like government policies on house housing, which have put our rents and our mortgages through the roof. The, the price of houses in the UK went up over 4,000% between 1971 and 2011. And I demonstrate how that was due to government policies. Imagine we all needed to only pay a fifth of the rent. How yeah. much richer would we all be? Yeah. I talk about, um, and I talk about various other policies like that, ways that realistic pol policies that in the real world would help everyone include especially the poor so i think yeah look out for that book um maybe when it comes out you'll have me back on your show absolutely bug it we, we um, i'd love to have you back on for that I, I know you've done some excellent writing on applying these ideas to mm. the healthcare system and where yeah. it's functional what could be done about that would love to talk about that and a host of other things too so it'd be great to have you back on but just let me know when is that book out is that out yeah, I've, I've not decided whether I'm going to release it in uh, August or September. Okay. I'm, very, I'm very busy in August. I could put it out next month, but um, I'm really busy and I know I'll need to plug it like hell. So I might just wait and put it out on the 1st of September. Uh, so, I, I, But it will, it will be available on Amazon Kindle and um, uh, that and other might may, may get a print copy as well. I've not, sure. I've not thinned out the details yet. Okay, great. We'll stay in touch with Anthony or um, sign up to my mailing list and I'll put a reminder around when great. it comes out. Thank you very much for today. We'll speak again. Yeah, soon. thank you. I just one more plug, please just, sure. uh, if you're interested in anything I say, just go to be yourself and .com forward slash do it and download my free book, Procrastination Annihilation. It will help you overcome your blocks to achieving your goals. And also it's got links to all my other work in it. Thank you very much. Thank you.